you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 9. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 53 to 56. Father, we come before you in your word, and we ask for you to be kind and gracious and merciful to us. For here we are in our weakness before you, whether we know it or not, and whether we feel it or not, Lord, we are weak, but you are strong and mighty. We ask, O Lord, that you truly would look upon us and pity us and have mercy on us and reveal to us the Lord Jesus. Reveal to us the truth about him and about ourselves and about our world. Help us to see reality. Oh Lord, I ask that you would grant us this grace because we do ask it in his name, the name that is above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. How do you react in life when you get rejected? How do you react when you get hurt? How do you react when you get treated unfairly? How do you react when you get cut off? How do you react when you're slandered? Or how about maligned? How do you respond? How do you react? I know you guys, perfect love, every time, perfect love. (laughs) Do you usually respond and react in life to the things that happen to you in kind? You, You treat others as they have just treated you? Or do you respond with intense anger? Something comes your way, something happens in life, you don't like it, how do you react? Is anger kind of a natural response for you? Or how about hatred? Does that come pretty easy? You can find yourself hating, perhaps not just, maybe you say, well, I don't hate the people closest to me, but you, you find it pretty easy to hate people, groups, people, movements, those people. And because they don't have a face and because they don't close, it's, they're not close to you, it's really easy to hate them and what they stand for. How do you respond? How do you react to what comes into your life? Because how we respond and how we react to what comes into our life reflects what's going on right here in your heart. All you have to do to see someone's heart is put some pressure on them. Do something that gets them to react. Get them to react. And when they react, what comes out? Oh, that wasn't me. That's not how I am. Yes, it is. That's our hearts. Our hearts come out in these times. And it reveals in those moments, what we believe is happening to us, what we believe about God, what we believe about this world, and what we believe about ourselves within this world. It it reveals also what we believe should be happening to us in this world. 
And this morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 9, where we have three distinct reactions to a particular event that takes place, and each reaction tells us a lot about our own hearts. The text in Luke 9 begins in verse 51. Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him, him meaning Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now these people who he's referring to here are the Samaritans. He's going to a Samaritan village. We don't know the exact village, but he's going to a Samaritan village, and they react towards him in anger. That's why they would not allow him to stay. The people did not receive him. Basically what it's saying is they, they didn't want him. There's no way he's staying here. And so these, they react in anger this way, and now we're going to find out why here in a moment. And, but the reality is we can also and all, often do act in anger to what Jesus is doing. And to understand why, we need to understand the context of what's going on here in this passage. And then some of these expressions we're going to find out are, are a little bit unfamiliar to us. We don't use them, and we're not exactly sure what they mean. But first of all, as we've already looked at, we know from this one particular chapter already, Jesus knows that his execution is quickly coming. It is at hand, and it's consuming his mind. It's starting to pop up everywhere. And you can see, see here the language is, is making that, I guess, somewhat clear in, in saying this, that the days were drawing near for Jesus to be taken up. You see how it says that? The days were drawing near for Jesus to be taken up. Jesus knew he was heading to Jerusalem, and he's heading there for a purpose. And the expression is an interesting one, because we don't ever hear, hear of his death, um, his uh, resurrection and ascension as being taken up. That's an interesting phrase. The, t- the time for him to be taken up is coming. Now, we also don't know, is this expression, is it talking about Jesus being taken up into heaven, or is it talking about him being taken up on a cross? Which is it? We don't know exactly, but it really doesn't matter. We know that one way or another, it's talking about this event that's going to be happening. He is going to be taken up on a cross, and he is going to be taken down from a cross, put in a grave, and then we know he's going to be taken up into heaven as he's resurrected and goes to sit at the right hand of the Father. So either way, the days are drawing near, it says. Which means it's getting close. It's at hand. And then it says that his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, this is an expression that's not too familiar to us at all. We don't talk about setting our face toward Seattle uh, when we're headed downtown. I mean, I haven't heard anybody use that expression. But they uh, they use it in their day. And the, the expression basically meant he has one goal and one purpose, and he will not turn to the right or to the left until he has accomplished it. We might express the same sentiment by saying, I am bound and determined to get to Fred Meyers by noon. Now that's, okay, we can relate to that expression. We know that the person 
using the biblical language, has set their face upon Fred Myers. That's basically what they're saying. And they, the guys who went before him obviously said something to the fact that the Samaritans understood what they were talking about. Because what do they, they go there, he sends messengers ahead of him, and he says, and go prepare a place for me because we're heading into the village to stay. And now, it doesn't tell us what the conversation was like or what happened, but it does tell us that, that the days drew near for him to be taken up. So his face was set to Jerusalem, and then his face set to Jerusalem, and the next thing we find out is the Samaritan village won't accept them there. So they probably went there and said something like, you know, we need somewhere to stay for our Lord, Jesus. And they all would have heard of him by this point. He was, at this time, incredibly famous. Everybody heard of Jesus. They knew of this Jesus of Nazareth. Now, they had different opinions as to who he was, but everybody knew this Jesus. And they probably also had to have mentioned that he was, had set his face to Jerusalem. He is headed to Jerusalem, and that's where he's going. He just simply needs a place to stay. Because of the reaction that he gets. Now, it's important to understand, this would have ticked the Samaritans off. And why? Because of the time of year and where he was headed. It is approaching Passover. And Jesus is heading towards the city and it's getting near Passover. And he knows why he's, they, they know, the Samaritans know why he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem for Passover. And this says something about them and what they believe. You have to understand historically that the Samaritans and, and the Jews were actually very hostile towards one another. In fact, they hated one another. The Samaritans actually considered the Jews to be self-righteous, smug, nasty people that God could not like those people at all. How could you like those people when they're so, they think they know it all, they think they have it all together, they think they have everything just right, they think, they, they think they're the ones, they're a bunch of arrogant morons, and God could not like them. And what the Samaritans did is actually, 30 miles north of Jerusalem at Mount Gerizim, and near the city of Shechem, they built a temple, a temple that, where they worshipped. And actually coming up shortly, do you know they're going to celebrate Passover as well? And guess where they're going to celebrate it at? And Mount Gerizim in their temple near Shechem. And where's Jesus going? He's heading to Jerusalem. What does that say to Samaritans? You're wrong. It's the wrong place. You guys are not the ones. And you, you notice that this is actually an issue. And do you guys recall in your minds, if you've read your Bibles, where this little issue about where you know, we should worship comes up before. If you think, brain catalog, John chapter 4, Jesus with the woman at the well. And all of a sudden, she brings up this, this exact issue. She says, you know, you Jews say that we should worship at Jerusalem, and we Samaritans on our mountain, Mount Gerizim. She doesn't say that exact expression. But where do you say, she says to Jesus, we should worship? Where is the true place? And then Jesus goes to talk to her. He dresses it, and he says, you know, the truth has come through Jerusalem. Jerusalem is basically the city. But here's the deal. This is, this is very, very, creates a very, very intense conflict between these two people groups. And there are, the Samaritans are, they're, 
they've been known by the Jews as these half-breeds because they're Israel in the north. If you long-sorted Bible history, Israel in the north, who actually started to intermarry with a lot of the pagans and unbelievers in the area. And so they see them, the Jews see them as these half-breeds, kind of my brother-in-law almost, my ex-brother. We used to be close brothers, but now they're exiled and they're all goofy and weird. So they didn't like, the Samaritans did not like what Jesus was doing, and they were angry because of it, and they're basically saying there's no way he's going to stay here. It's not going to happen. Yet I think about this, and it helps me to realize that we're often just like this. It's just like us. Jesus is at work in our lives and in our worlds, and we don't like what he's doing. We don't like his agenda. So we become angry. We often get upset because of what is happening. Just think of what makes you angry. And if we're honest, we often get angry over things that are happening in our lives, and sometimes even trivial things, which we just simply don't like, because we like to have our way, to get our way. So when you have a hunger for cereal in the morning, and you walk into the kitchen, and you open the fridge, and then you find out that the milk is empty, it's all gone, you can get angry. Who drank the milk? Who used it all? Man, I was looking forward to that. It doesn't take us much, does it? Oh, you're angry because there's just the milk ran out? Yeah, someone should have been thinking. Someone should have went to the store and got some more. Why? Why? Because you want some, milk, uh, some cereal right now. Yeah, because I want cereal right now. Oh, so you get your little will thwarted just a little bit, and you get in a tither. You get a little angry because you didn't get what you wanted. Is that how the world works? Give me what I want or I get upset. Oh, okay. That's what two-year-olds do as well. But they don't act nearly as sophisticated. You see, we, we are people who, by nature, often it's very easy to us, and especially our flesh, our long, we have longings, we have desires, and we want things. And when that, those longings and desires and which we think we want or we think we need or we think we should have, and it doesn't happen our way, we don't like it. Yet, we're Christians, and who's in charge of the world? Who's the governor of it all? The Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus, who wants, who has his will and desires to come into the city and to have a place to stay, to stay, and the people are angry and they throw him out because he's not doing what they like. And how often are we just like that? He's not doing what we like. He's not doing what we want because we think we know best. We think we have a better agenda. We often have a very difficult time receiving from his hand what he gives to us. Because often what he gives to us perhaps are things we don't like or don't want. But he believes that this is what we need. He believes this is what is best for us. He believes that this is what is going to be good for us. But we have a really hard time, don't we, accepting that. Because if we wanted what Jesus wanted, we would be able to rest in what he brings our way, good or ill. If evil befalls us, we say this is from the hand of our good Lord, and he, from the hand of our good Lord, he ordains all that comes to pass into my life. He brings it into my life, and he is going to use it for our good. 
He's going to use it for my good. He, this is what I need. This is a good thing. And so we have to, you know, when he first does this, when God first starts messing with you, when you're a new Christian, you don't, you don't like it. This isn't something that we naturally are prone to. Our flesh hates it. But to learn to trust the Lord and to learn to trust his goodness and his will and his ability to work things out for our good and ultimately bring great things out of it, it takes us a while. He brings stuff. He brings events. He brings afflictions and these things. And he allows even the evil one and his, all that he's doing to do things in our lives because he's ordaining it all for our good. But it takes a long time. When it first starts happening to you, you don't say, Lord, I give you thanks for these things. And I trust that you, and I know that you will work them out. But that's the goal, that one day we could submit to it. One day we can trust him in the midst of it. And we no longer respond with anger. So that's the standard. It's the goal. It's where we're headed to, so that when, when, whatever Jesus is doing and whatever Jesus is doing in our lives, we're able to give thanks in all things. And all things give thanks, right? As we looked at? For everything. That's the, that's the pinnacle of mature faith, is that in all things we give thanks. Where are you at? Well, one thing you'll realize, if you examine your life carefully at all, you will see plenty of areas where you're like, yeah, I need to grow. And God is growing you. He's faithful. And it's, it's like watching a tree grow or your child grow. It's often unnoticeable. But after several years, you kind of think, I think it's grown quite a bit. It? it almost takes someone else. Someone else almost has to observe. Well, th- today we have pictures. And we could look back. like, Oh, man, have they ever changed a lot? Have they ever grown a lot? But if, imagine if we never had pictures to give us perspective. We often lose perspective. And we don't realize that God is growing us. We're maturing. We are more and more being able to respond appropriately by his grace because this is the project he's on, is making us so that when we respond, we don't respond like the Samaritans who get angry because of what Jesus is doing. He's going and doing something we don't like and we disagree with and we think we're right and we have the right way. And if we don't react to what Jesus is doing in this way, we tend to react how his disciples reacted. And the disciples reacted with hatred by wanting to destroy the Samaritans. And what do we do? We also act with hate at times to what is going on and to what Jesus is doing. Just look at the text. Here's how it reads in verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Why did they say that? Well, like I've been setting up here and showing you, the Samaritans and the Jews, they hated one another. The Jews believed that the Samaritans were a bunch of reprobate half-breeds who sold their birthright to go the ways of the world. They did not like them at all. In fact, yes, it's right to say they hated them. The hostility between them was hundreds of years old, And nothing would have pleased the Jews more than to see God treat them like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
was a lot like Jonah's hatred for the Ninevites. He did not want their repentance. He wanted their destruction. And it ticked him off when God showed mercy towards them. And this is why James and John, zealous to see the Samaritans get a lightning bolt right between the eyes, eagerly ask, hey, Jesus, should we call some fire down on these morons? Because it would really be appropriate. They just, I don't even notice, but they rejected you. They didn't let you stay the night. So I think it's more than appropriate that they be wiped out. You know, these guys are really getting cocky at this point. If we've been following what's been going on, how they've been reacting, they, they just finished arguing about who was going to be the greatest. Then they asked Jesus if they could stop others from casting out demons because they're not following them. And, and now they want to call fire down from heaven and consume these people. You know, just like us, it doesn't take long for us to forget what has been done for us and begin to develop self-righteous hatred toward worldly sinners. Just think of how smug we can feel about those crazy liberals who want nothing but political correctness or hate crimes for saying anything against their liberal agenda and their social, what they want to develop, those social welfare programs. Ooh, don't get me started, right? Gay marriage, free everything without having to, you know, just get free everything without, without having to work. And of course, the right to choose whether you kill your baby or not. And I could keep going, right? And if I kept going, there's probably lots of things that, you know, they, they should anger us. We should hate the, what they're what the, the standing for. But I think what ends up happening is we end up hating them. We end up hate those people. And actually, we can start to relate to a people, a group that you don't like. That you, man, if I had ability for lightning bolts right now, I think I could solve a lot of problems. <laughs> because, in fact, what they, they represent is everything we can't stand. Or everything we're against. Especially everything that is against God. And because they're against God, we feel very justified in our hatred, just like James and John would have. This is righteous hatred. I hate these people. Who wouldn't hate them? Look at, look at who they are, look at what they've done, and look at how and God has to hate these people too. But as much as we'd like to think we're standing for God and what is right in this world, we're really exposing our spirit, which doesn't align with God's. You see, it's one thing to hate what someone is doing. It's another thing altogether to hate the people who are doing it. Just look at how God thinks about the wicked. In Ezekiel 18, 23, God asks Ezekiel a rhetorical question. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live. That's not pleased in the death of the wicked. What he's pleased with is their repentance. Or just take 2 Peter 3.9, which says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is God so patient? Is it because he can't stand these people and just can't wait to throw a lightning bolt in their forehead? No. It's because he desires their repentance. And he's willing to be so incredibly long-suffering and put up with all kinds of wickedness just so that they might repent. That's the Spirit of God. And that is why when we hate people for who they are or what they stand for or what they're doing, we are opposed to the Spirit of God. Not only this, but we quickly and easily forget who we, who we would be apart from the grace of God. If God were not merciful and gracious to us, we would be worse than the people we hate. Guaranteed. It's only by grace that you have what you do. And we should look and say, oh, but the, by grace of God, there, there I am. Go look in the mirror. And that alone should be enough to change our attitude. So if you hate someone, or if you hate a group of people, and have no compassion toward them, then you are dramatically opposed to the Spirit of God. And this is why Jesus reacts with love, by rebuking his disciples for their harsh spirit. And it's why we need to act with love as well. To what is going on. Verse 55 says this, but he, Jesus, turned and rebuked them. Now, if you have, how many people, raise your hand, do you have an ESV? Are you looking, who's looking at an ESV? Who is not looking, who does not have an ESV? Okay, there's okay, a few. In an ESV, all it says is he rebuked them. But if you have, a, I, think, I believe, a New King James, NIV, or, or King James, you will see that the words, the words that actually Jesus rebuked them with. And if you compare the two, you're like, what's this all about? It says Jesus rebuked them, and then these others actually have the what he rebuked them with, but it's not in the ESV. And you say, well, why is that? Here's why. Let me explain to you. The ESV uses what they call the NU text. It's an abbreviation for a bunch of words that will just confuse you. It yeah. This is accepted as the oldest manuscript available. Whereas the New King James and those others that I mentioned, they use the majority text. And this is a manuscript that they have the most of. So they have the most of this majority text. They have the least of the NU text, but the NU text is the oldest. So, as you can imagine, there's debate about which to use. And some have chosen to use the NU, and some have chosen to use the majority text. And so, uh, and then there's these little discrepancies. Now, don't get excited because the discrepancies are, it's nothing, nothing is contradictory. It's just that some might have some more information than the other, like what Jesus said here, for example. And so this is what, in the other text, Jesus says in this particular situation. I think it's very important for us to understand what's fully going on here and also to apply this to our lives. Because what he says is, 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 you can see by looking at Jesus, hearing what he said and the rest of the Gospels, that this is pretty much, yeah, this, this aligns with what Jesus would have said. There, in those texts, they have, Jesus rebuked them, 
and saying, and it says, You do not know what spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Period. End quote. You do not know what spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And you can say, Amen. That's exactly probably what Jesus would have said. And it makes perfect sense. Jesus is about saving lives, whereas his disciples were about what? What were they about? Destroying lives. Therefore, they did not have the same spirit. Jesus didn't want wrath and destruction toward his enemies. He wanted their repentance. If John would have said, Jesus, should we ask God to bring judgment into their lives to perhaps lead them to repentance? He would have been of the spirit of Jesus. He says, That's, that is a great request, John. Because we have to understand the spirit of Jesus. Remember, Jesus' persecutors, the ones who hate him, the ones who killed him, the ones who crucified him, he loved them. And he says to him on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And in that same spirit, Stephen, who's being unjustly and wickedly killed and stoned by his enemies, says the same thing. Father, forgive them. Look at his heart. What's his heart like towards his enemies? It's just like Jesus of the same spirit. Now we might say, okay, I get that. I understand that. Yes, I hear what you're saying. But what about imprecatory psalms? Don't they line up with the spirit of John and James? And I think what we see in the psalms of imprecation is that they're always against God's enemies and not a hate towards the psalmist's enemies. And now let me sort this out because I went and I read several of them, not all of them, but several of them in preparation for the sermon. And I noticed that David would pray in regard to his personal enemies. He would pray for his deliverance. Oh, God, save me, deliver me. But then you see that his hate and his desire for judgment comes towards God's enemies. And there is this discrepancy in it. You'll see that his personal enemies, he cries out for, he does ask for vindication. He does ask for deliverance. He asks for salvation. And then you see that he, what he hates are the enemies of God. He hates the fact that God's name is being slandered the way it is and ask for judgment on them for the sake of God's name. So out of love for God's name, he justly wanted wickedness to end, and rightly so. However, if we hate a particular people because of who they are and what they, are doing, what they stand for, and we would delight to see them destroyed then that is not the spirit of God, but the spirit of Satan. The spirit of Jesus is to have compassion on your enemies, to pray for them, to forgive them, and to seek their repentance and salvation. And you've got to understand there's a difference between the people who are, who are doing it and hating the people like John and James and the disciples would have, and they wanted nothing more than to seem destroyed than hating their sin and the, and the fact that it's against God's name 
And that burdens them and bothers them, and they want vindication of God's name, and they want God's name to be exalted, and they want this to end. They want wickedness to be put away with and destroyed and finished. Those are two different things. So the question is, how should we react to our enemies and to those who, who do things we don't like? If we're to act in the spirit of Jesus, we respond out of love which doesn't mean we don't say anything or do anything. Even Jesus loved his disciples, and he rebuked them. Jesus loves people, and he speaks the truth to them. That's what love does. But if we respond out of love like Jesus, we should pray for our enemies, proclaim the gospel, and seek and desire their repentance. One of the best ways to destroy wickedness One of the best ways is to see people repent. Instead of hating God and running from God and doing wickedly, to see them run to God and seek God and do righteously. That should be the desire of our hearts. How do you overthrow wickedness? You overthrow it by having their hearts changed so they no longer serve the evil one and are, are kept under his power, but rather be freed and delivered and come out of that and come into his marvelous, God's marvelous light. But if we want people to be wiped off the face of the planet, we can know for certain that we're not speaking, we are not speaking in the spirit of Jesus. And all of this, the question really is, how do you react to what Jesus is doing in and around your world? Do you react with anger like the Samaritans? Do you react with hate like the disciples? Or do you react with love like Jesus? How do you react to what Jesus is doing in the world? Well, and perhaps this morning you sit there and you think, well, Dean, it depends. It really depends. It depends when you catch me. And that is true, isn't it? It's true of all of us. It really depends. I wish I could always say that I react like Jesus. Not. Doesn't happen. There's sometimes I I respond and, and react in hatred, sometimes in anger, and sometimes in love. But one thing I can say is that whenever I've reacted in hatred or anger or anything, any response or reactions inappropriate, it's always because I've, I've totally lost perspective of who God is, who I am, and what the world's like. And I'm not walking by faith. I'm walking in my flesh. And when I walk in my flesh, it is really easy not easy. It's the, it is the actual natural reaction to be angry and to get hate, become hateful. But when I'm walking in the spirit and putting to de- death the deeds of the flesh and, and trusting God and walking by faith, it's actually natural to respond in love because the spirit of love, the spirit of Jesus dwells in me and works out of me. And if you're a Christian, you'll see times where, man, I responded and reacted out of love one responded and reacted out of anger and hatred. And these two things, oh, how incongruent. And sometimes you feel how schizophrenic. 
But the real issue is here, you know what? You will not react and respond in love if you do not know deep down and understand who God is, who you are, and how this world works. As you get to know God and you know who he is, you know how he works, you know who you are, and you know how the world works, you can begin to trust him and submit to him and obey him. And then out of that comes love. But if your faith is weak and you're doubting, you've got a misunderstanding of who God is, you've got a misunderstanding of who you are, you've got a misunderstanding of how the world works, you, you often are going to respond not in faith, but in your flesh. So here's the question. Do you want to respond in faith? If you do, you must be renewed in your understanding of who God is who you are in light of him and how this world works. Because the life and the world is coming at you and hitting you and you're interpreting all the events that are happening. And as you interpret them and understand them and believe them to be either for your ill or for your good, and how you understand what is happening will determine how you react. So in all of us, if we are to react to Jesus appropriately, we must understand Jesus appropriately. We must understand what he's about. We must understand him and his mission. And then as we get it, as we see him in his glory and his goodness and his power and his authority, and as we understand ourselves in light of all of it, and we understand what's happening in the world, we can live and react and walk by faith. So to the degree that that is true, to the degree that we believe that, is the degree to which we will respond in love. The degree to which we don't believe that is the degree to which we will respond in anger or hatred or any other vile response. So, it's before us this morning, and if we're to leave here and to walk by faith, we must ever keep before us Jesus. Amen. Father, We're thankful that we we have your word so that we might be able to see you and your ways clearly, that we might be able to see ourselves and our ways clearly, and that we might understand what is going on in this world. Oh, oh Lord, give us a hunger to seek your face, to seek your glory, to seek our understanding of you, that we might be wise and discerning that our hearts might be filled with faith. I pray for these people, your people. Cultivate in, cultivate in them a deep, desirous hunger to know you, to know themselves in the world, and that by knowing and understanding, they would know that th- that indeed is life. That indeed is, is the only perspective that will help us to walk through and navigate this world. Be merciful and gracious to us, And hear our prayers, for we ask them in Jesus. Amen.